J.R.'s reminiscences reminded me that it was 29 years ago in January that we began. I was a student, uh, doctoral student at the seminary and teaching at Believer's Chapel, and a call came down. They wanted to start uh, a church up here in North Texas. I said, you already got churches up here. Why? And he said, well, we want one with Reformed soteriology. And so they referred them to me, and we were living in Mesquite. We drove back and forth for five years. We had no property. We had no assets. Um, they let us uh, use the Finley Cultural Center for $35 a week. Um, utilities, everything. Some of you were there uh, during that time period. I remember Roger Bateman was a deacon at that time, and he came and he said, hey, there's a facility, uh, a piece of property up there that's uh, for sale that the Lutheran Church had, and you're in it. Now, it's good. believe me, it was completely different um, uh, at that time. I had a little office in the back, back there, and tore down the back part and, and redid that. And uh, we need to redo some electricity. And when they went up above the drop ceiling, there was these huge lights about this size, red and blue. They used to be the dance floor because it was a honky-tonk. <laughs> and uh, one of the guys came in and, and uh, remembered that when he was playing in a country western band at Austin College, he said, hey, I remember that. Right over there was the stage. And... Uh, on Tuesdays was all the beer you could drink for $2. So um, I'm so thankful as, as I look back. I came up. I never thought I'd stay. I thought I'd go off, teach, at a Bible college or a seminary, a university. And I'm so thankful that God changed my heart. I love you folks. And I love what I'm doing. And I know that there's been greater sanctification in my life because you pray for me. How many people going out the door tell me, Pastor, we prayed for you, we prayed for you, prayed for you. And also another great blessing is the men who serve in this church. If you're a deacon or an elder and serving, would you please stand? Thank you, men. These, these, I, with, without the, the counsel, the advice, the help uh, of these men, we'd, we'd be in uh, big trouble just following me. So thank you, men for serving uh, together. We're going to return to Matthew after a two-week uh, hiatus. I want to thank Trevor for his careful presentation and exegesis of Luke chapter 2 at Christmas. Dr. Mays was here last Sunday. He thoroughly enjoyed his time with us, uh, especially the time on Sunday evening, and one of his comments to me was, you have a congregation that actually sings. So, thank you. Um,
He is sending us several copies of his CD, Songs and Words of Solace. Uh, he's both the pianist and the narrator on that, and he put that together when he lost his, uh, his wife, and he offers that to others that maybe that would be of help to others as uh, um, well. He's also sending us two of his books of piano arrangements of hymns that we can copy without, you said, you don't even have to ask me for the copyright, just use them, distribute them among your uh, pianist, and uh, so I was, I was uh, thankful. We're going to come to a text this morning that only two men in the history of the world have ever walked on water. When we approach this text this morning, perhaps at no other text, this will reveal to you your attitude towards the Word of God and the God of the Word. I, I get help from commentators like William Barclay in terms of the word studies and exegesis, but they are anti-supernatural. And so he just says, well, what really took place was this. They were frightened, and the boat was blown a little bit off course, and they were near the shore, and they just thought Jesus was walking on the water. And uh, he was just walking along the shore. I go, well, that's interesting that Peter got out of the boat. He didn't walk on the shore. Um, this, is, this is an incredible text. And as I pondered it again this week, it's going to challenge us. It's going to challenge us. Do we really know the living God, and do we really believe and trust in him? Um, let me pray, and then we will work through uh, this passage. Father, thank you for mercy. Thank you for grace. Thank you that we can come this morning as the people of God, even to the Lord's table, and remember you. We're so thankful for what you have done on behalf of guilty sinners. Do a work of grace in each person's heart according to the need. Where there is rebellion and obstinacy, would you be gracious and bring conviction of sin and genuine repentance? A lot of sorrow this past year. Bring comfort. Bring encouragement through the Spirit of God as only you can do. Help us to be a people who walk in holiness and godliness and dependence upon you. Turn, incline our hearts to your testimonies, not to covetousness. Grant us a deeper desire for obedience to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And may you be the true teacher this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
Walking on the water is the second miracle recorded in Matthew on the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a lake. It's a freshwater lake, but we've been so accustomed to calling it a sea. I'm going to continue uh, with that. I think it's helpful to remind us of the first miracle on the sea, and that was the calming of the storm. Jesus was in the boat at that time with them. And then compare the effect of that first time how they respond to this second time how they respond when they see Jesus is not in the boat with them. And they're out there all alone. And he shows up, and they are shocked and frightened. The, the text uses the verb terrasso. It means not only fear, but your emotions, your adrenaline is at a fever pitch. What is going on? So I'm going to begin by returning again. We are working our way through Matthew, and we are at the Galilean ministry of our Lord the feeding of the 5,000 will be the last miracle, public miracle in John before he begins to then focus upon his disciples. Now, I put a red dot uh, there. Um, that is uh, Ein Gev. A uh, number of you who have made uh, that trip, you will remember Ein Gev, a beautiful uh, area that we stayed at each time, and up to uh, my right on the map would be uh, the Golan Heights, or more commonly known as the Golan, and today you stand there, as of 1968, Israel regained that territory, and we could stand up there and look out the top of those mountains. You could see Syria up towards Damascus. To the right was Jordan. To the left uh, was uh, a Lebanon. And there are several ravines or wadis that come down also and feed into the Sea of Galilee. And when the winds pick up, up there on the mountains, they can come rushing down there and cause the Sea of Galilee to become very turbulent in, in a real hurry. Here's a, a picture of us. Um, we uh, had just stopped at Ein Gev. We're going to spend the night. And Ami Kohen, what a great guide, and uh, had been doing that for almost 50 years, uh, a Jewish uh, fellow, not a believer, but very respectful of Christianity, great interacting with him from uh, the Scriptures. He said, if, if you'll come down here quickly and watch, the sun is about to set. And so we got a beautiful picture of the sun setting over the Sea of Galilee, almost like glass. It was, it was so calm. And here's at sunrise getting up and now this is a different angle. This is off towards the Golan, and you see the sun coming up, and it was a little bit uh, choppy there at that time. But I, I can't recall which uh, time it was when we stayed at Ein Gev. I think it was may, maybe had been the second time. But anyway, we, we were in these small uh, units, and uh, 
uh, all of a sudden we heard this howling noise. The wind picked up. And I thought, is that going to blow out those windows? And that that little unit that we were in, surely we're not going to be able. One of the highlights of uh, going to the Sea of Galilee is to go on a, uh, a boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. And I thought, they're, they're not going to let us out there, not, not in that. But it quieted down uh, later the next uh, morning, and we were able to go out there. Now, when we, we think about boats, forget, forget motors, it's muscle power. Or you might have a mast with a sail, a small, a small sail. But that's it. Now, this is what they call the Jesus boat. I've showed you pictures of it uh, before. There were actually two brothers, two fishermen, and there was a drought, and the water had receded, and they were going along the schmuck. That's a Chicago term, mud, on the on, uh, edge of the Sea of Galilee, and they discovered something down in there. It looked like a boat. And sure enough, and so they had people coming up from uh, the Hebrew University archaeologist and it, the process of getting that thing out of there. Now, they call it the Jesus boat. Jesus probably never rode in that boat. But it's, it'll give you about the size of boats there at that first century. And so they put it on. They, this is in a museum right there on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. The boat's about 27 feet long and seven and a half feet wide. It would surely fit all of the disciples. But I tell you, you do not want to be out there if the waves pick up and you have winds coming down, or they can also come off the Med uh, Mediterranean from the other direction. And remember, you're, you're at the lowest spot on planet Earth except for the Dead Sea. So you're about 800 feet uh, below sea level. And when the winds come whipping down in there, it, it can just turn that into uh, uh, turbulence. And so the first occurrence was back in Matthew chapter 8. And we read, a great storm, mega is the Greek word, a mega storm arose on the sea. And the boat was being swamped by the waves. And here's Jesus back in the stern with his head on a cushion. And that word was probably uh, for, for rowers. So, you know, you get old, you need, you need to sit on something soft. And uh, it would be like a rower, a sailor's rower's cushion. And so he's, and the boat's being swamped with water. And he's just back there sound asleep. And they go to him, Master, Master, don't you care about us? We're, we're perishing. And they woke him up, and he got up first. Before he rebuked the seas, he rebuked them. Oh, you of little faith. And Jesus stood up, and he rebuked the winds and the raging sea, and suddenly from a mega storm to a mega calm. And, and this is actually a shot of uh, the Sea of Galilee. That's courtesy of Bible Lands when uh, Dr. Boland was our uh, 
went with us at that um, Turkey and Greece. So there was a great storm to a great calm to great fear among the disciples. But here's what I, I want you to remember. As we come to the one today, watch this initial reaction. Now, if you're in the middle of a, of, of a great storm and somebody just stands up and says, Seopi, it's, it's a Greek, be silent, stop it, stop it. <laughs> He's talking to the wind and the waves, just stop it. And he uses another imperative. It's one, uh, be muzzled, like you're muzzling an animal. And instantly, a great calm. Just see like the, the, the sea suddenly became like glass, like a mirror. And what's the, what sort of, and the disciples, what sort of man is this that we are with? Now, remember, they've been following him around. They've been teaching him. They've been watching his miracles. But that one stuck that they could remember. What sort of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then uh, next in the text, we came to the feeding of the 5,000 men. Probably most would say at least 20,000 or more total. Remember, they had come back. Jesus had sent them on their first journey. He's trained them. Okay, you go around Galilee. Just go to lost sheep of the house of Israel. Here's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to preach repentance and heal, cast out demons, everything that Jesus gave them the authority to do. And they came back, and they're reporting to him, and it says they were tired. They're tired. He says, come Come apart, and we're going to go to uh, a remote area and get some rest. So they get on the boat. I assume they were over Capernaum. They cross, and they come to the plain of Bethsaida. This is probably Bethsaida Julius. And there another miracle uh, occurs. And how did that happen? Well, it just says, Mark 6.42 uses a particular verb. It's an imperfect, and it means that there's something continuous that's happening. So he takes these, these barley loaves and these little fish, fish that have never swum in the Dead Sea, is what I mean in the Sea of Galilee. They're going to eat bread that has never grown into... You just keep multiplying it. It says he just kept giving, just kept giving. And when it was left, I take it there were 12 baskets for this reason. Um, some people had brought their, their, their lunch. One little boy, evidently in his excitement, had not eaten his yet. And so they had some empty baskets, and they brought them. And that's probably, it was distributing that, filling those baskets. Had the crowd sit down in groups of 150 and fed all of them. And at the end of it, Watch the reaction for the crowd. This is very important as we come down to this next uh, miracle. And I am just put it on here in John chapter 6 uh, to save time so we can get to the Lord's table. But there is the effect of the miracle on the crowd. Now, some think the crowd didn't, didn't know that it was a miracle. I, I totally disagree with that. Um, when they're going out and they're looking, hey, what do we have left? And all it could have was one, he's asking the crowd, and suddenly they watch Jesus down there, 
And the result of that was what I call misguided messianic enthusiasm of the crowd. When the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus performed, they began to say to one another, this is certainly the prophet who is to come into the world. That's Deuteronomy chapter 18. You remember Moses? There's going to be a prophet greater than Moses. And they so, and you know what they're looking for? This is our deliverer. Well, what kind of deliverance were they looking for? Well, he's going to depose the Herods. He's going to depose Rome. This is the king, Psalm 2, and we want him. And so they were going to come and take him by force and make him their king. Hey, you, you look, 20,000 people, take the men, let's go down to Jerusalem. Let's set him up. And he says, because he knew they were going to come and seize him by force to make him king, he withdrew again up the mountainside. So that's the setting for this miracle. And if you'll turn, if you're not there, um, uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 14 and verse uh, 22. Now I'm going to cover this in, in this way. Sanctification, meaning for believers, it's maturing in our faith. And God brings difficulties into our life, not because he doesn't like us. It's precisely for that reason. When do I get stretched the most? Difficult times. When it's easy sailing in my life, you know what I can do? Then I, can, I have to be very careful. At times of easy sailing, I get too independent. I get dependent upon myself. I'm comfortable in my circumstances. And God will bring along something else and jerk the rug out from underneath me uh, so I can grow in truth and grace. So how do we grow? Well, you have to be in the book. You cannot grow in your personal sanctification without reading, believing, obeying God's Word. Don't take my word for it. Take what Jesus said. Eagerly, Peter puts it this way, eagerly desire the pure spiritual milk of the Word so that by it, by that Word, you might grow up, Oxano, increase in your salvation. He's talking about growth growth in grace. If indeed you've tasted it, the Lord is good. And then prayer, and then I'm preaching to the choir. You're here this morning. We need fellowship. We need, we need one another. So I'm looking at five attributes demonstrated by Christ here in this account that leads them from just saying, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him, the, the pinnacle of this passage is going to be when they say, truly, it's an adverb, aletheos. It comes from the Greek word for truth, aletheia. They got it. They got it at that point. You are the Son of God. This is high Christology. Now, 
They didn't totally understand yet everything about the Messiah, but there is no doubt in my mind that they understand right then they're in the presence of deity. So that's how we're going to work through these. And I start out, first of all, with this authority of Jesus Christ. So when we come to the text, verse 22, now remember, John, it's gospel, he tells about this messianic uh, fervor, and they want to come and make him king. And so when we read Matthew, he says immediately or once, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Now, when he made, that is a Greek verb, anankazo, it means force, compulsion. He compelled them to go. In other words, there's some resistance there on the part of his disciples. That verb occurs 11 times in the New Testament, and the degree of force or compulsion you have to get from the context. But here, it's, it's clearly... They don't want to leave. We want to be here with our master. We came over here for rest with you, and instead of rest, all these crowds showed up, and all this has happened, and uh, he says, no, get in the boat. Get in the boat. And to their credit, they got in the boat with great degree of reluctance and headed to the other side. And then, while he's doing that, while he dismissed the crowds. So two things demonstrate his authority here. It's authority over his disciples. Do, do you always respond to Scripture and go, oh, this really sounds like a good thing for me to do when I see imperatives? I'm always challenged and going, now? Is this? Is, yeah. And they obeyed him. Well, there's also the crowds in general have a wrong messianic view. And he dismisses them. And he goes off, what's he, what's he do? And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself. It's a little prepositional phrase, and it means privately. Privately. To pray. To pray. Now, now think about this. Go back with me to the temptation accounts in Matthew. Here's one, the third temptation. Satan tempts him. You can have it all now. You can bypass the cross. I'm offering you all the kingdoms of the world and all its glory. What did he say? Yeah, depart from me. You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. And he knew why he had come. Mark 10, 45. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom on behalf of many. And I, I just see, I, I think there's an intimation here of this same thing. The crowds are wanting him that same, hey, you can have it all now. Nope. I'm going off to commune with my heavenly Father. And he still doesn't have the rest. And he sends his disciples off. He doesn't want them infected with, with that. And he goes off on a mountain to pray by himself. 
This is so challenging to us to pray. Do you know I find it easier to study than I do to pray? It, it's a discipline. It takes time. And furthermore, my mind gets distracted when I'm praying, so um, I pray out loud. Some, you know, who's he talking to in there in his office? Is he talking to himself? No, I'm talking, I'm talking to God. I get up in the morning, and, and it's helpful to me. Well, here's Jesus communing with his heavenly Father, surely exhausted, came for rest, didn't get it, and here's the temptation. And what does our Lord show us? You better pray. Remember in the garden, what didn't they do? They fell asleep. So he has authority over his disciples. He has authority over the crowds. He has authority over temptation, a desire for solitary prayer. And then the scene here shifts to the knowledge of Jesus Christ in 1424. When evening came, he was there alone. Ah, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves. Both Matthew and Mark use the verb bassanizo. Um, what, what's that thing where you, um, the bassa, you know, you, you have a bar, and it's how low can you go? There you go. Okay. I think of that when I think of this verb because it's, it's one, it's, sometimes it's used to physical torture. In other words, they're being out there tormented by the wind and the waves. These are seasoned fishermen. It should just be a short trip across there. And uh, Luke tells us that they had made maybe 25 or 30 states. He gives us the, the distance. Now, the Sea of Galilee... And lengthwise is probably about 12 miles and wide, maybe seven and a half. So if that's right, it was one, a state I think is 608 feet. So you put that in terms of miles, they would be about three or four miles out there on, they certainly weren't on the shore. They're out in the middle and the wind is so against them, you could just see their muscles aching. And now they're probably thinking, why did Jesus send us out here? We didn't want to go. Didn't he know what was going to happen? Where's he at? Well, he's up there on the mountaintop and he's praying and he waits till the precise time. You know, you could see it. Martha, Mary, Lord, why, why weren't you here? If you would have been here, my brother Lazarus would not have died. Always shows up at the right time. Not always on my timetable, not always on your timetable, but he shows up at the right time. And so we go back to the text and we see what happens. It was beaten by the waves, the wind was contrary, and in the fourth watch of the night he came to them. Now, uh, this is probably following Roman times, so you go from 6 to 6, and they would divide it in uh, periods of three hours of peace. And so we're probably sometime three to six in the morning. It's just getting daylight, still dark. And all of a sudden, I mean, 
They look out there, and what do they see? He came to them walking on the sea. Now, this is still a storm. I, I think of Caleb, our son, he learned to barefoot water ski. But when you crash, it hurts because you have to be going fairly fast to do it. I showed my age and intelligence for once. I didn't try it. And, uh, but here, these, these are storms. These are big swells. These are waves. How's Jesus walking across there? And they look out there, and the Greek word, they saw a phantasma, what they thought was some type of apparition, but it wasn't an apparition. They saw something out there. And believe me, if you and I would have been there, we would have joined the crowd. They shouted out in great fear, what is that out there? They were terrified. They said, it's a spirit, some type of being out there on the water. And they cried out. All of them cried out in fear. And Jesus immediately spoke to them. Now Mark, boy, i got to speed up here. Mark tells us, Jesus came out, and it's sometimes translated, he was going to pass by them. No, he was passing alongside them. John tells us he came to them. This is intentional, intentional by Jesus to come to the boat. And what's he say? Now, sometimes, ego amy, it's an emphatic way, but sometimes you, you could translate it's I, but I don't think so here. This is in terms of emphatic, like in John Scopel, the great I am state statements, they're ego amy. And when he's saying that out there, this is, an old, this is like an Old Testament theophany. Hey, he's, he's not out there. Oh, don't sweat. It's just me. No, I am. I am. So thanks to Peter, he expresses for a lot of us what we'd like to say, but we're afraid to say it. I was so thankful for students in the seminary. I'd have questions, and uh, I don't want to be the one who asks them so you don't look dumb. I know. It, a student's question is never dumb, but R.C. Sproul in a doctoral class one time, he goes, oh, yes, there are. There are stupid questions, and don't ask them. <laughs> So Peter goes, Lord, if it's you, if it's you, command me to come to you. One word back from Jesus, come, come on. He's the only one that got out of the boat. He's the only one that walked on water. Now, if you compare the synoptics, the storm is still raging. And he steps out there. And he's walking on water. This really tests your belief in the veracity of Scripture. And I don't know how far he got, but Jesus was near the boat when he showed up, and Peter's walking to him, and all of a sudden, you know, the waves, the wind, he's probably getting splashed, and he looks away from Jesus, and he starts to sink. So he's going down. It's a Greek verb. At least he recovered himself quickly. He only got one word to say. 
Kurios, Lord, save me, save me. And what does the Lord say to him? No, just drown. Why didn't you trust me? What does the Lord do for us when we're foolish? And we cry out to him for help. What's he do? He gives help. He gives help. So he reaches out, and he takes Peter by the hand, and he pulls him up. I don't know if he had to hold his hand all the way back into the boat. And they both got into the boat, and suddenly the wind ceased. Now, some see that just as divine providence. I think it's more than divine providence, that suddenly and, and the whole storm ceased. But here's, here's, here's where I want to... Uh, uh, end up here. Um, the result of this, compare this to Jesus was in the boat in the storm. And they said, what, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now you had Jesus actually walk on the water and they say, different reaction. He's in the boat with them. And the, and the storm stops, and they say, you are the Son of God. You know, this is only the third time this occurs in Matthew, an expression of the Son of God. It was at the baptism of Jesus, the Father, the voice from heaven, said, this is my beloved Son in whom I take delight. There's one. And remember the Gadarene demoniacs? They knew who he was. Who... who why have you come to torment us before time, Son of God? All those are full Christological statements. And now when you have it here by them, you, all of them are recognizing, wow, we're in the presence of deity. So when I come to this and apply it in, in theology, the first one is Christology. Truly, aletheos, aletheia, truth, truth. Do you recognize that this morning? Do you recognize he's the son of God? This is deity. And he came, he came for a specific purpose. Now, they don't understand death, burial, and resurrection yet, but they know that this is the Messiah and he is Christos, the anointed one, he is the son of God. They're in the presence of deity and they worship him. And then secondly, there's something here about discipleship. Now some say, oh, don't do that. You just, you just allegorize the text. No, this is also for us as well. I'm just going to conclude with the Heidelberg Catechism. This is so helpful, knowing that, that we're out there in the storms of life, and I wonder where my God is. Just listen to this. What an incredible statement. Lance, Lance Quinn's wife, right before she died of cancer and went home to be with the Lord, she posted this. What is your only comfort? in life and death, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now I'm going to change the order a little bit. There's a great hymn. It was going through my head all week. Um, it's not in our current celebration hymnal. It's from every stormy wind that blows. Sometimes it's just called the mercy seat. And Jesus is that mercy seat. So in preparation for the Lord's table, do you remember this one, Jerry? If Jerry will come and lead us uh, in this hymn, and then we will partake of the Lord's table together. <laughs> 